0: Acts 10 uh, marks a historic uh, breaking point in the story of God's redemption. Up until this point, if you've been with us, uh, the book of Acts, we have witnessed essentially a uh, Jewish reformation, thousands of Jews converting to Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. Most notably, of course, as we saw in the last chapter with Saul of Tarsus, who uh, ...went from trying to put an end to the Jewish revival... ...to joining it himself. But from the very beginning of Acts... ...Jesus made it clear that this movement... ...was not going to be an exclusively Jewish movement... ...but was destined to reach the very ends of the earth. And we, when we looked at Saul's conversion in Acts 9... ...the Lord said this of Saul... He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. Now my concern for us this morning is that we do not appreciate the significance of that statement. And if we don't, then we cannot appreciate the significance of of what is about to take place in Acts 10. Where the gospel does indeed break through to the Gentiles... It is a historic moment, not just for the book of Acts, but for the story of history. So today I felt the need to, do, um, to, to, to be more of a teacher than a preacher, so to speak. In order to preach this monumental moment, I think I do need to first provide some necessary background to the moment. So my goal for us this morning is simply to understand what is taking place in all of this. And then in the next couple of weeks, we will celebrate and apply it. Though at the end of the sermon, I certainly will come back and have a a prophetic preaching word to us. There are two very significant misunderstandings present in our passage that represent the major stumbling blocks to the gospel reaching the Gentiles. Our passage is written to confront, to rebuke, to dismantle these errors within the Jewish world at that time that needed to be dismantled in order for the gospel to reach the Gentiles. And so my aim this morning is for us to understand what they misunderstood. And this is, this is what they are. There are two of them. We're going to see misunderstood identity and misunderstood practices. Let's we'll start ...with their misunderstanding of their identity. Verse 1. At Caesarea, there's a man named Cornelius... ...a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort... ...a devout man who feared God... ...with all his household... ...gave alms generously to the people... ...prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day... ...he saw clearly in a vision... ...an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He said to him, your prayers and your alms... ...have ascended as a memorial... ...before God. Okay. Okay. Caesarea um, was an influential Roman city inhabited almost exclusively by Gentiles. And Cornelius is a centurion in Caesarea, thus an influential Gentile in the city. And notice, and this is very intentional, notice that Luke goes to great lengths to commend Cornelius to the reader. He notes that he is a devout man, that he feared God... ...that he leads his family in the fear of the Lord... ...that he gave generously to the poor... ...and that he prayed continually to God. This is describing a picture of Jewish piety. Again, intentionally so. And then to drive home the point... ...verse 4 tells us that Cornelius' prayers and alms... ...have ascended as a memorial before God. Meaning not only was this Gentile... worshiping the God of Israel the God of Israel was receiving his worship. So what's the big deal? Well, the the big deal is that uh, the Jewish mind had no category for that. In their understanding, there was no way to serve God... or be accepted by God without being Jewish. Someone who maintained their Gentile identity while simultaneously worshiping and serving the God of Israel was, in the Jewish thinking, an irreconcilable contradiction. What is the deal with the Jew-Gentile thing that you see all over your Bible? If you have ever wondered what that's all about, these next five minutes is for you, okay? And it's for everybody as a refresher for those who do understand it. But we do need to understand it. In our Old Testament reading this morning, we read God's promise to Abraham, and this was his promise. This is the essence of his promise. You will be the father of a great multitude of descendants, and I have chosen to bless your descendants. And the Hebrew word there for bless was much more than prosperity. It was nothing short of God's salvific love, God's salvation. Abraham, I'm going to save you, and I'm going to save everyone who comes from you. And so these descendants of Abraham became known as the Jewish people, of course. And all other people of the earth known as Gentiles. So with beginning with Abraham, humanity was effectively divided into two groups, Jews and Gentiles. Now the symbol of that divide was circumcision. The Jewish generations, these generations of Abraham were marked by circumcision, and the Gentiles became known as the uncircumcised. That was their name for them. They're the uncircumcised, we're the circumcised. And that sign spoke to the promise given to the Jewish people. It was a promise sealed in blood. Obviously, this is a bloody procedure. But it was genital blood. This pointed to the blood-signed promise that a seed, an offspring... ...would come as the Jewish Messiah and deliver... ...on that original promise given to Abraham... ...that he will save him and his descendants. Now, of course, you know that the claim of the New Testament... ...is that Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah... ...that long-expected Jewish Messiah. But what's so interesting when you look at the life of Jesus is that although Israel was pining after this Messiah, when he finally arrives, they reject him and even crucify him. Why? Because his coming disclosed an unexpected mystery that shook the foundational belief of the Jewish people. Here was the scandal of Jesus as Israel's Messiah and the gospel that he proclaimed. It is true that what God promised to Abraham, that God promised to save the descendants of Abraham, that is true, that did not change at all. But the question of questions is who are these descendants? Who are the children of Abraham? According to the New Testament, it is not those... ...who necessarily had the circumcision of Abraham... ...but those who had the faith of Abraham. In other words, not the physical descendants of Abraham... ...but the spiritual descendants of Abraham. As I mentioned, the Pharisee Saul... ...called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. You cannot get more Jewish than Saul. He was chosen to bring the gospel to the Gentile world. So Saul, who who is predominantly known as Paul, Paul... more than anyone else, had to understand what I'm about to say. Had to, had to be able to articulate it and defend it. And he does, particularly in Galatians and Romans. Paul takes us back to the moment that Abraham received the original promise from God. And it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Meaning, righteousness by faith, like we believe in. And then Paul says, likewise, anyone, anyone who believes like Abraham, anyone who looks in faith to the God of Abraham as revealed in the incarnate Jesus, they become children of Abraham. They become the inheritors of God's promised salvation to the descendants of Abraham. Father Abraham and many sons, many sons of the Father Abraham, I am one of them. And so are you. So let's praise the Lord. Right arm. Stephen said, do you want me to close with Father Abraham this week? I said, no, Stephen, I don't want you to close with Father Abraham this week. How am I a son of Abraham? How are you a son of Abraham, a daughter of Abraham? Why do our children... ...sing that they are sons and daughters of Abraham... ...plug for infant baptism there. Why do our children sing that? As far as I know, nobody here is physically Jewish. Paul says, a Jew is one inwardly... ...and circumcision is a matter of the heart. We are not physical descendants of Abraham... ...but we are descendants of Abraham's faith. And conversely, Paul warns Jews... ...conversely... That those who do have, those who are physical descendants of Abraham, who do share his circumcision, but do not share in Abraham's faith, Jews who reject Jesus the Christ are cut off from Abraham's promise. Physical circumcision, as Paul argues, is of no value. What matters is the circumcision of the heart as expressed through faith in Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. Therefore, the mystery, one might even say scandal, of the gospel is that it is opened wide. It has opened wide the seemingly exclusive doorway into the household of Abraham. Now, anybody, including those filthy Gentiles, anyone who would look to Jesus Christ in faith shall be credited as righteous ...as Abraham was credited as righteous... ...shall become the children of Abraham... ...the father of the faith... ...and thus an heir of the promise... ...given to Abraham... ...the Abrahamic promise of salvation ages ago. And thus, in this way... ...the fullness of that promise... ...the truest understanding of that promise... ...is now fulfilled... ...that Abraham... ...will be a blessing... ...to bless the nations... ...that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through him. And so the first misunderstanding that is being confronted in the passage... ...before the gospel goes to the Gentiles... ...the first misunderstanding is one of identity. Jews misunderstood God's promise of salvation... ...to be exclusively for those with a Jewish identity. So if if they were to read these verses and see Cornelius worship their God... ...and their God receiving his worship, they would say, impossible... That cannot be. He's not a Jew. God's salvation belongs only to Jews. Cornelius is welcome to be circumcised. He's welcome to go through the purification rites and become a Jew and thus then inherit the promise. But you have to become a Jew to be saved. You can't be a Gentile and be saved. Well, very shortly, God is going to shatter this entrenched misconception of Israel as soon there's going to be another Pentecost moment... where the Spirit will be poured out upon the Gentiles... and the gospel will explode out into the Gentile world... and the world would never be the same... even down into this very moment in this sanctuary. But before that can happen... another Jewish misunderstanding has to be deconstructed. We've seen their misunderstood identity... let's look now at their misunderstood practices... So before the arranged meeting that is clearly directed by the Spirit of the Lord... ...before this arranged meeting before Cornelius and Peter... ...a meeting that is destined to change the course of history... ...there's this strange passage, right? Verse 9. The next day as they were on their journey approaching the city... ...Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray... ...and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. While they were preparing it, he fell into a trance... ...probably a better translation of the Greek there is he fell into a vision... And saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now, what in the world is that all about? Well, before Peter is prepared to witness the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the Gentile world, something else must be addressed. Not just a misplaced Jewish identity, but also misplaced Jewish practices. So let me teach a little bit here on this. If you've ever read the book of Leviticus, then you will know that the Jewish people had some strange laws and customs and ordinances and Um, ...ceremonies and all of these things. And these unique practices became the defining mark of what it meant to be a Jew. Most significantly is what is being confronted in Peter's vision here... ...which were the dietary restrictions of Israel. If you go read Leviticus 11... ...what you will see is that it goes through a list of animals... ...that Israel can and cannot eat... ...or clean and unclean animals... Now, if you just look at Leviticus 11 by itself... ...removed from the story of Scripture... ...then these restrictions won't make sense at all. And perhaps you have read them... ...and perhaps they do not make sense at all to you. This is a good lesson for us. Everything God did with Israel... ...every event, every story, every command... ...finds its meaning and fulfillment... ...in the greater story that he is writing... ...which, of course, culminates in Jesus. So if you disconnect... ...anything in the Old Testament from Jesus... ...it becomes something it wasn't intended to be. You can view the Old Testament as kind of one big... uh, ...elaborate pedagogy... ...teaching us unveiling the redemption of the Redeemer. Everything works together to tell that one story... ...yes, even the dietary restrictions. Jews not being allowed to enjoy the deliciousness of bacon... ...tells us about Jesus... Let me explain. In the very beginning, you know God creates all things and he declares that all things are good. And then out of that good creation, out of that ground, comes Adam. God forms Adam out of the ground. Well, as you know, Adam sins against God. And in response to sin in Genesis 3, God curses the creation that he previously blessed... He says, because you have eaten of the tree that I commanded you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground. Because of your rebellion, creation, the ground represents creation. Creation is now cursed. It is now painful, sorrowful, and ultimately terminal as we will all return to the ground. The ground that once yielded the life of Adam now receives the death of all of Adam's descendants. Out of the ground you were made, but because of sin to the ground you must return. So cursed is the ground because of you, is the declaration that encapsulates what is wrong with the world. Okay, when you get to Leviticus 11... And he's setting up these restrictions for his people. You get to Leviticus 11, and you see what animals God declared unclean. They all have one thing in common, the ground. So clean mammals were those that chew the cud, which indicates a plant-based diet, and those who had a cloven hoof, which was a barrier between them and the ground, so to speak. If an animal didn't have both of those characteristics, they were unclean. Why? Because the ground that we have cursed. This is why the pig, which uh, just wallows in the filth of the ground and feeds on just about anything they can find from the ground, the pig, more than any other animal, was viewed as the epitome of uncleanliness. But there were others. Birds that, that were unclean were those birds that ate carcasses from the ground. The fish of the sea, they were all fair game, as long as they had scales and fins, meaning these were creatures of the sea that spent their life exclusively in the water and didn't touch the ground. Lizards and snakes and such were, of course, off limits. Can't have those. And so were, of course, insects unless, this is a direct quote from Leviticus 11, you may eat those who have jointed legs above their feet. If there's a tiny joint separating the insect from the ground, you can have that one. So enjoy your grasshoppers. You see what's going on here? Even the diet of Israel was reminding them of their sin and their need for redemption. Every meal they ate was a reminder, curse is the ground because of you. Every meal would, would fill them physically and leave them spiritually hungry. Hungry for the Messiah who would come and undo all that they have done to creation. Just like they misunderstood their identity, however, they misunderstood these practices. You see, these restrictions were supposed to convict them, indict them, but they perverted them into the opposite. They perverted them into a means of self-justification. We're the clean ones. We're the clean ones who eat only clean foods, unlike you, unclean Gentiles. But that mindset is the complete opposite, the complete opposite of the point of Leviticus 11. The point was not that unclean foods makes one unclean. The point is that we have made food unclean. It's not the pig's fault. Our sin is at fault. Now, Peter's vision, verse 10. He became hungry, note that, and wanted something to eat. While they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. So the, the sheet with four corners represents the four corners of the earth. It's a picture of God covering the earth with a new meal. In it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds of the air. And there came a voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And a voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. What sinners made unclean, God has made clean with the coming of Jesus. We will sing it next month over and over again. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The arrival of Jesus marks the beginning of a new creation. The advent of all things new. And then, with this preemptive vision... ...that that Peter receives... ...he is now prepared for what's about to happen. Verse 23. The next day he rose and went with them. Some of the brothers, Joppa, accompanied him... ...and on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them... ...and he had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him... ...and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, "...stand up, I too am a man." You see that? In the Jewish mind, they were something special. Gentiles should fall at their feet, those Gentile dogs... He says, get up, I'm a man like you. Verse 27, as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered and he said to them, you yourselves know, he's speaking to a room of Gentiles, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. I get it now. So when I was sent for, I came to you Gentiles without objection. I asked then, why have you sent for me? Cornelius said, four days ago about this hour, I was praying in my house, the ninth hour. And behold, a man came and stood before me in bright clothing. He said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Now, if Peter had not had that vision, if God had not shown him this, the conversation would have ended there where Peter says, so what's going on? And Cornelius says, well, your God showed me a vision and he, and he, and he said that um, my prayers and alms have been received. He said, no, that's not true, I'm out. But instead, says, send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I send for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here. We unclean Gentiles are here with you. Listen, in the presence of God. We're all together in the presence of God... ...to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. We're all here. Gentiles are here. And we're ready to hear Peter the Apostle. We are ready to hear what you have to, to proclaim. We're ready to hear your gospel we've heard about. And next week they will hear it... ...and the gospel will break through to the Gentiles. But the greater point of our passage today... ...is not that the Gentiles are ready to hear... But that Peter is ready to preach. God has dismantled Peter's worldview and opened him up to the plausibility of the Gentiles receiving the gospel before he could preach to them the gospel. And that's what happened. He says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Okay. I'm running short on time, but I really don't want this to be all teaching, no preaching. So let's very briefly consider what this means for us. And you might think, what in the world does a passage about Jewish identity and dietary restrictions have to do with me? A lot more than you realize. I want to suggest that the Jewish misunderstandings were not misunderstandings at all. It's not like God was hiding what he was up to in the world from them. He told them explicitly from the very beginning to Abraham in the statement that started the whole Israel thing. He told them, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all the nations. In you, Abraham, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. It's not that they didn't know that or couldn't understand that. Here's the point, it's that they didn't want to. You know, when someone apologizes and says something like this, I'm sorry you misunderstood me. How much do you hate that? Oh, I'm so sorry for the misunderstanding. It's not a misunderstanding. It's not what's going on there, right? They're hiding behind that... ...because they don't want to admit the real issue here. And here's the real issue. The Jewish people were just like everyone else... ...sinners who want to be better than everyone else. It's not that they misunderstood what God was doing... ...it's that they sinfully perverted what God was doing... ...for their own superiority... Now, can you relate to that? What's interesting is that we, the far-off Gentiles, over here in America, 2,000 years later, that's that's Gentile, okay? The far-off Gentiles who have been brought in now tend to do exactly what our ancestors did to us. Now, Christians tend to view themselves as superior to those unclean pagans, and yes, we even have our own practices that are clean and unclean. There may not be dietary restrictions, but we have them. You know, good old Christian fundamentalism of old would say going to the cinema and bar and dancing and drinking and listening to certain types of music, Affili- affiliating ourselves with these unclean practices of the unclean world is something to be avoided. And by avoiding them, we demonstrate how clean we are. Now we're the PCA, we like to dance, a little wine, we're too refined for old school fundamentalism. But yes, we have our own. Like I said last week, and certainly because of the moment that's upon us, bears repeating on the other side of the election. As we remain divided, we tend, both sides, not speaking on one side, both sides tend to view a certain political party as unclean people and a vote for that party as an unclean act. To vote a certain way is as unconscionable to us as a Jew eating pork. And there are many other examples I could give if I had the time. But the point I'm trying to make is that make no mistake about it, we struggle with the same fallacies of our ancestors. And this passage is here to shatter those misconceptions and get all of us to where Peter is when he says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So the application question, I'll close with this and and then we'll be done. Who are those people for you? You've got them. Who are they? Who, though you would never admit it, do you view as unclean? Who will you not associate with, but instead rail against in private conversations and maybe social media? Who is too far off for the gospel, too far gone for the gospel? And perhaps your hatred for them is so deeply embedded that you don't even want them to receive the gospel and join the church. You don't want them at TCPC. Who's your Gentile? I say to all of us, how dare we? We, those filthy, unclean Gentiles who once despised were despised by God's people have become like the very people that once despised us friends don't take communion this morning if you're not ready to repudiate that vileness in your heart and in your life absolutely take it if you see it and you hate it and you want to be different and you don't want to have gentiles and you're struggling to get there that's who takes communion But if you're unwilling to lay that down, if you're unwilling to repudiate that, then don't take communion. Because the message of this meal is very simple. Calvary may be a hill, but the ground at the foot of that hill is level. There is no clean or unclean. There is only unclean sinners made clean by a Savior. Let me pray. Lord, I do pray that you would take this sermon and let, let it not just be an exercise in education about some of these um, confusing parts of the Bible, but, but let it penetrate our hearts. Reveal to us who we treat as unclean. Reveal to us those that we despise in our hearts, though we would never admit it. And, and help us to renounce that. And help us to move forward in love, as we talked about last week. Lord, this meal is a common meal. We call it communion for a reason, where we come together in one hope that unites us all. We are unclean. We need Jesus to make us clean. Convince us of that, we pray in his name. Amen.